Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 645 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 25th of September 2022 as I record this and yes I am clearly back from my pilgrimage, more coming up on that in my personal section. In today's show, I'm talking to Barry Nugent about comics, graphic novels, transmedia, podcasting, and also how a creative career can develop almost by accident, as you say yes to opportunities as they arise and develop relationships along the way. Plus, how sometimes we need to take a step back and consider how best to get our intellectual property to a wider audience. So I really enjoyed this wide-ranging chat with Barry, and even if you don't think you're into comics and graphic novels, have a listen anyway, as many of the overarching topics are relevant for all of us as creatives, and I certainly came away with new ideas. So that is coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, I guess the first thing is the big news from the Authors Guild and the Society of Authors in that Amazon has changed their returns policy for ebooks. So currently, Amazon's return policy allows readers to receive a full refund for up to 14 days, even if people have read the full book. And the use of this refund loophole, and this is from the Society of Authors, but the Authors Guild had a similar uh, article. Basically, the use of this refund loophole has been encouraged by users on TikTok, and that has definitely meant it affects certain genres more than others. In an email to the Society of Authors and the Authors Guild, David Nagar, or Nagar, Amazon's vice president of books and Kindle content said, we will deactivate self-service returns for any book read past 10%, adding substantial friction to the process. And essentially, this will mean that if a, if someone reads more than 10% of a book, customers can still request a return, but they have to go through more of a process. I, I mean, yeah, this is good news. But I think the whole returns thing is really confused by Kindle Unlimited, where the use of the word return (laughs) is the same. It's like if you're if you're a reader within KU, you borrow and return books. And so when you finish a book, you return it. So I I feel like (laughs) this has complicated what people understand as returns. Uh, But yes, good news. Also, while I was away, Spotify finally launched audiobooks in the USA with an a la carte model, which I think people were a little surprised about, but that's probably to do with a lot of the agreements in place. Although I presume at some point there will be a credit model or some kind of streaming model. Findaway Voices had a blog post. They say, Spotify presents new audiences for your stories as the world's most popular audio streaming subscription service with over 433 million monthly listeners. And authors, if if you have already published audiobooks through Findaway Voices, you don't need to do anything. You, you're automatically opted in unless you opt out. So I'm really pleased about this. You know I've been talking about this for years. <laughs> uh, Spotify's own press release says, this is just the beginning. 
of Spotify's audiobooks journey. We're really excited to introduce audiobooks to an audience who may never have tried them otherwise. And this is a really good point. Um, Still a very small percentage of people who listen to audiobooks. But more and more now listen, obviously, to music and to podcasts. So uh, users in the USA, so this is not available in the UK or else I'd be trying it, but users in the US can easily find audiobooks alongside their music and podcasts and in curated recommendations on the home screen. Uh, Audiobooks will show up with a lock icon and they need to be purchased in order to listen. So yeah, I'd be really interested to know if you're in the US and you're having a look at this, uh, what you think. Um, As a listener, (laughs) if not as an author, each audiobook's price is determined by Spotify with royalty rates based on publisher and consumer's cost being what is, quote, consistent with industry norms. So yeah, we wouldn't get to decide the price, but you know, this is what happens with all of this stuff. Just as we did with podcasting, Uh, They say this will introduce a new format to an audience that has never before consumed it. So, yeah, I've been expecting this for years since I heard Spotify at Frankfurt Book Fair. They did one of the keynotes at the audio conference. Must have been four or five years ago now. And I when I heard them speak about the recommendation algorithm, I was like, I am so I just had one of those moments where I'm like, that is totally going to be huge. And I switched my podcast listening over to Spotify. I switched all my music over to Spotify and I will definitely get audiobooks there. I listen on multiple apps right now, mainly Audible and also BookFunnel uh, for direct sales uh, in the BookFunnel app. And I would definitely add Spotify too. I think we we all use multiple apps for multiple things now, right? Uh, they also have this really cool feature where they excerpt from podcasts and news and personalise people's experience. And I would love, love, love to think that this might include audiobooks too at some point because I use Spotify as a search engine. I go on to Spotify. If I, if I want to learn, like, you know, I've gone deep into things like blockchain or AI creation. So I go into Spotify, I use the search bar to search for a topic, and then I will pick podcast episodes based on a topic. That's mainly how I listen now. And I would do the same for audiobooks. And uh, to be honest, the Audible search is terrible. (laughs) It's so terrible. I tend to use the Amazon site to search and then I pick an audiobook from the main site, because the audio search is so bad. (laughs) So that just tells you an example of a user issue um, with the current system. Now, many of you be like, oh, but Spotify is going to ruin our income. And it's like, I'm sorry, I totally disagree. I personally, I, as I've said for ages now, streaming and unlimited digital is only going to grow. Streaming should and subscription should not be your only income stream. And in fact, in this creator economy model that I've been talking about, you're using these big platforms to attract readers and listeners to your content that you sell direct. So instead of them using you, which has been the sort of the way it's been, we're using them as marketing platforms that, yeah, sure, we might get an income stream as well. But the whole point is to attract new people into our own ecosystem. And there we can get higher royalties, better data access, all that kind of thing. Now, I would love to say that one day I might be able to say the same thing about the other platforms. (laughs) But I'm certainly intending to treat Spotify as another revenue stream for sure, but certainly not a big one, more about marketing. We shall see.
So also on audio, I wanted to mention an interview with science fiction author and Metaverse company founder, Neil Stevenson, who was on the Sword Guy podcast with Guy Windsor this week. And Guy is a listener and a patron of the show and also has been on the show. Episode 554 with Guy talks about how he transitioned to an online business. Now, I wanted to mention this episode, not because you're all sword fans, although if you are, check out the sword guy. But many authors ask me how they can use podcasting in such a crowded market and how it can drive revenue, how it can work. And Guy has this niche podcast. So his whole business is around swords. He has books and courses and um, teaching and all these different types of things, historical stuff. And yeah, it's very cool. (laughs) Um, So basically, his podcast is content marketing for his business. And it also enables him to connect with very cool people who are into swords. (laughs) Now, also a niche podcast like this is far more likely to attract a high profile, famous author like Neil Stevenson. And um, because essentially this mutual interest in swords gave Guy a chance to connect with Neil in person, I think. And it went from there. And they talk about Neil's new blockchain metaverse company, as well as his books and love for swords. So I thought it would be a great example. If you're considering a podcast for your author business, think about how it can underscore both the business and your passion and how you can connect with people. And it's actually one of the reasons I started my books and travel podcast is because I wanted to talk about things other than writing. Um, But obviously, this show is a core part of my business. But remember, I started this show in 2009. And um, if I was starting a podcast right now, I would not start a podcast on writing. I would start one not on swords either, (laughs) but something like books and travel or something that was intersectional to my writing. I hope that helps give you some good examples. Also in futurist stuff, uh, and I have some episodes coming up on AI art, but related to this episode on comics, Gail Carragher, fantastic author and also previous uh, previously on the show, sent an email about AI comic creation. So uh, one of the issues that we talk about in this episode is how expensive it is to get the art done for comics and of course very supportive of comic artists and all artists and all writers. (laughs) But essentially, people are going to use these AI tools and are already. And there's an article that I've linked to in the show notes where the author is a comic creator and he used Midjourney, which is one of the AI art tools. And he says he alternates between glee and a bone deep fear about where these things may be headed. And definitely, I know all of us feel somewhere on this scale. And I do oscillate. I'm not all positive. Uh, I do oscillate between this is awesome to this is terrifying. (laughs) So I do have a separate episode coming up on AI art. But AI generation, whether text, images, music, is going to keep going. (laughs) It's going to continue. It is not stopping. It is. If you see where it is right now, and you th- sort of fast forward 10 years, it's it's extraordinary. But remember, AI is not some sentient being, at least right now, that is sitting there wanting to create. It needs the will of a creative person and you need to prompt it according to your vision. And uh, yeah, so prompt engineering, which is now being talked about as a job, um, being the people who actually work with the AIs to create things. I do cover this in my uh, AI-assisted author course, if you're interested. 
So more on AI art to come. That is kind of probably in the next month, actually, I've got a discussion on that. And also more on blockchain and uh, that type of thing, NFTs before Christmas. So in my personal update, as I mentioned, I am clearly back from my Camino pilgrimage walk. It was around 300 kilometres over 14 days back to back, solo walking with my backpack, so carrying my own stuff um, from Porto in Portugal, north along the coast and then inland to Santiago de Compostela. And this, uh, there are many roads, <laughs> many Caminos to Santiago, and this was the Portuguese coastal route. So my pictures are on Instagram and Facebook at jfpenauthor and I am prepping some articles and a solo episode on books and travel over the next few weeks as I process the trip. So I'm clearly very tired <laughs> and my feet are recovering from some blisters but I made it and I did finish strong and I definitely feel all my weight training paid off as I had no other pain apart from blisters and in fact I felt better physically walking 18 to 30 kilometers a day than I do sitting at my desk. Um, it was crazy. I, I had no back pain, no shoulder pain, no hip pain, no, none of like no headaches. I, it was very, very weird to me that even though every day I was tired and I, but I, I was walking for so long. I mean, it was probably most days between five to eight hours walking and carrying this pack and it's kind of crazy we're meant to move more than we do being a writer is not <laughs> not the healthiest job that's for sure but it does I'm very happy doing my weight training doing my walking and it was just weird to me to not have that pain um but there you go uh good news <laughs> So this was my third pilgrimage in the last two years and this one was on my bucket list. It's something I've wanted to do for decades and when I was sick with COVID last year, so a year ago July, so July 2021, unable to walk anywhere, I vowed I would finally do my Camino and now I have done it. So achievement unlocked, <laughs> bucket list item ticked and uh, I will be writing a book on pilgrimage and solo walking to sort of round out the last couple of years of experience and uh, as I've talked about before in terms of the Clifton strengths, one of my top five is input which basically means I need input in order to output and to write and now I am ready to write that book um which is which is cool and i'm really pleased uh, much to say about this which is why i have to write a book on it but i am a secular pilgrim so i'm not um not a christian uh, but i have many thoughts on all of this so if you're interested at all in this type of walking then yeah there will be a book in terms of lessons learnt, uh, I have lots of, again, lots of thoughts I will be reflecting in more detail at some point, but I didn't go with any intent to radically change my life as many people do. Many people go and walk these pilgrimages in order to sort of make a big change, but I'm really happy <laughs> with my life. So it was more of a need to reset, to get some perspective, to, um, yeah, to prove something physically, which I certainly proved. And I did get perspective as well, just being away from my desk. I mean, one of the biggest things is the sense of time. So with the Camino and the other pilgrimages, the Cuthbert's Way, the Pilgrim's Way here in the UK, there's this sense of being, of walking in this long line of pilgrims stretching back a thousand years. And the shrines at the end have had pilgrims visiting for a thousand years in, in this case. And there's this sense of time passing, of being insignificant, of memento mori, 
and I often talk about these things, obviously, but it really helps keep things in perspective. And I had that with the Camino itself and with the cathedral at Santiago de Compostela, which you just feel like, whoa, history is really big and I'm really small. <laughs> but also with the Queen dying while I was away. Um, now, it was obviously expected. She was very old. She was she was ready to die, basically. As soon as, in fact, I said that when we had uh, drinks for the Jubilee, I was like, she'll be gone before Christmas because I feel like she mentally, once Prince Philip died, she's been sad, obviously. She's really old and also get, making the Jubilee was a big goal. And But what I think was part of, and I know I've heard on some other podcasts, Americans questioning why this is such a big deal. But for us here in the UK, we grow up with the royal family. I mean, they are part of the news. They're part of our uh, country. <laughs> a lot of our monuments are to kings and queens. We learn about history. Um, it's it's quite a big part of our lives. But mainly, you can see time passing. And you will have seen these pictures all over the world. The incredibly beautiful picture of the Queen when she was young. And then pictures of her and Prince Philip and the family and how lovely they were as an old couple. And when he died, you know, if you're, I mean, I'm very happy in my marriage and I cried for the loss of their marriage, not because of him being old or her being old. It was, you know, when a happy older couple are broken apart, that's that sad. Um, but seeing the passage of time in those pictures underscored the sense of time that I felt on the Camino, which is, I mean, even a lifetime if I live that long, I mean, it would be amazing, I hope. Uh, but we will all die. You and I will die. And hopefully we will get old first, like the Queen. But it just underscored this sense of, look, if there are things you want to write, if there are books you want to write, if there are things you want to do in the world or trips you want to take, if there are things you want to say to loved ones, then get on with it. <laughs> Seriously. The river of life just keeps on going and it, you can't stop it. You cannot stop this passage of time. And it felt like while I hopped out of the stream of the data stream for a bit while I was away, uh, it moved on regardless. I come back, think more things have changed. And yet, yeah, we have to make the most of this time. So if anything, I hope that that just makes you feel like, look, I must do this thing, whatever that thing is. And maybe it is a book because obviously we're writers. <laughs> so make a plan, get it done, creatives. <laughs> now, in practical terms, I also discovered, amazingly, that I can go away for a few weeks and the world doesn't end. <laughs> I took, only took my phone and I did check email once a day. Alexandra, my wonderful assistant, took care of anything necessary but realistically it wasn't such a big deal and yeah so I really need to take time off in the future. I also really happy that I learned I mean I've done hard physical things in the past but this was this was pretty hard to be honest and I walked through pain in the last few days and that pushing through energy that finishing energy is what we need as creatives too and I really just felt that like one morning I woke up I was like I really do not want to tape up my feet put them in these shoes and walk again and the, even the last the last day was like 27 kilometers the last few days were quite brutal <laughs> but I can do hard things and so can you. <laughs> so get out there. <laughs> 
also comparisonitis. I did want to mention the wonderful comparisonitis. I, we cannot shake it, my friends. We just can't. It, and what was funny on the Camino is that it's exactly the same. I mean, there's always someone who's fitter or stronger. There's always someone with a a bigger pack or a smaller pack or someone who's more injured or someone who's walked further or someone who's just on a day hike and has like it. I saw some people, like some people walked from Lisbon. So the route I walked, I walked from Porto, which was like two weeks, but you can walk from Lisbon. You can walk, you know, from further south. Um, But when you get into Santiago, you know, you'll meet people who've walked from Seville, Sevilla. You meet people who've walked, obviously, from France. And it's like, there's always someone who's more spiritual because they've walked further. And then there's just people who are on a day hike with a water bottle. And like, there's always going to be comparisons. And in the same in the writer world, you know, there's someone who writes their their first book, hits TikTok, and they make millions, <laughs> you know, or their, their first book gets a movie deal or people making seven figures a month. And it just feels like well why can't I do that and then you're like okay this is me (laughs) this is my body this is my body of work this is how it goes and uh, yeah so I think the comparisonitis it made me laugh at times this sort of you just can't help it (laughs) it happens in every part of our lives but mainly and uh, after all that and every day in fact I woke up and I did not feel like I need to change my life. I woke up feeling I am really grateful I have the career I have. I appreciate you as my listeners for buying my books. I am grateful for buying my courses, for sponsoring the podcast, for being patrons, for all these things. Like literally, I woke up every day being grateful for that fact. And I did meet people who were sort of, oh, I have to change my life. And I was like, "Mm, I don't. (laughs) Thankfully, I already did change my life over a decade ago, uh, what, 15 years now. And yeah, I'm really happy that I can write and create for a living. And of course, there are lots of things I want to do. But one of the biggest things is that I want to do work that matters, not just to me, but to you as well. And I I definitely want to get deeper in my work. So the pilgrimage book is going to be a much deeper book. It will have aspects of memoir and all kinds of things. Uh, and also the shadow book, which I really, um, I'm definitely going to get into in 2023. And I also, I'll obviously have more fiction, but I want to do work that helps you as well. So as I consider this next stage, I want to do a survey. In fact, I am doing a survey. Please complete my survey. The survey is at thecreativepen.com forward slash survey 22. So S-U-R-V-E-Y 22. Please do it by the end of the 7th of October 2022. And there are prizes. I will do a prize draw from all of the submissions. Uh, First prize is a one-on-one consultation with me, which you can't buy, um, or a course of your choice or a signed book of your choice. So, uh, and those, there are three prizes, basically. So, that is at thecreativepen.com forward slash survey 22. Links in the show notes. And that will help me shape what I do next in terms of how I can help you and how and also I do have a question there about there are so many voices now in the author space and I don't want to be just another voice I need to double down on whatever helps you the most so I want to ask you what that is and I mean I have obviously I have some ideas and I'm not going to become someone I'm not (laughs) but I want to ask you what you think it is why you listen to me why you come back and I want to do more of whatever helps 
So on writing things, Soldiers of God, which I wrote and narrated just before I left, is now out on all the audiobook stores, narrated by me, and perhaps even on Spotify in the USA. (laughs) Let me know if it's there. (laughs) I can't check because obviously I'm not in the USA. You can also, you can get it on any audiobook store and it's also available at my store, creativepenbooks.com. You know I have to mention it every episode. Also, you have a few days left to get 30% off my courses, including the Creator Economy for Authors, the AI Assisted Author, Craft Courses, Productivity, Business Plan and others. Go to thecreativepen.com forward slash learn and use the coupon SUMMER22, all caps, to get 30% off, which is valid until the end of September. So you've got a couple more days. So thecreativepen.com forward slash learn, coupon code SUMMER22, all caps. Right, uh, no emails or tweets or comments because there were lots and then, yeah, I just just sort of went bankrupt with emails and tweets and comments. (laughs) So it's time to start again. So please do tweet me at thecreativepen.com. You can leave a comment on the show notes. You can email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. You can leave a YouTube comment and uh, I will start reading them out again next time. Thank you so much. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Publisher Rocket by Dave Chesson and the team at Kindlepreneur. So Publisher Rocket helps you with keyword and category searches on Amazon, which you need for your book metadata and your advertising, as well as generating lists of keywords for your Amazon ads. You can also use it for researching where your book might fit before writing and also once you've published. So, for example, I have recently used Rocket to research solo travel and pilgrimage subcategories and keywords to decide on a title for my next book. Plus, consider the right words to include in my book description to appeal to the right kind of readers. I also use it for my fiction and recently used it to find the right keywords and categories for my arcane short story, Soldiers of God, which is essentially a sort of religious conspiracy theory about Templars. So you can manually spend the time on Amazon doing this. Of course, you can do manual searches, but it takes a lot of time and you have to think of all the different permutations to search for. So Publisher Rocket saves you time and frustration in your research. It makes it easy, which let's face it, is what we all need because we'd rather get back to writing. So you can also analyse the competition. So I can type in solo travel or Templar conspiracy fiction and Rocket will return a list of books in different formats that relate to that keyword phrase. I can look at their ranking, their price, the number of pages, drill down into the categories and that helps me add to my research and think about the different titles and all the different keywords I want to use. Now, remember, on categories, you can list your book in 10 categories per format on Amazon and again on the different stores. So on Amazon.com, .co.uk, etc. But you need to find those 10 first. And Rocket helps you discover them when you're first publishing or if you want to change up your categories over time as they are always changing. It also has a super useful AMS keyword search, so you can type in a keyword phrase and download lists of keywords for your Amazon advertising. Publisher Rocket is one of my must-use tools as part of my publishing process, and it is very reasonably priced. So go check it out at publisherrocket.com. That's publisherrocket.com. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time as ever and the extra shows is sponsored by my patrons. 
Thanks to new and returning patrons and those of you who have um, increased your pledge while I've been away. It's been wonderful. So new patrons, Jennifer Ailing, Alyssa Rose, Sarah Kukin, uh, Catherine Flan, Ali Priest, Lowe, Ida Flowers, Adele Barlow, Peter Lakeshaw and Amanda Brown. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show on Patreon for years now and for months. And remember, if you support the show on Patreon, you for just just a few dollars or pounds or Canadian dollars or whatever euros, whatever you like, um, you will get the extra monthly Q&A audio, which is always very personal. And I answer all your questions about all kinds of things. And you also get money off my ebooks, audiobooks, courses, and you're going to get the first chance to, um, if you do my survey, you'll see I'm going to be doing some sort of uh, more teaching, Zoom lives and stuff like that. And if you're a patron, you're going to get the first crack at that. And that will be a limited uh, live audience. So you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Barry Nugent is the author of the supernatural adventure Unseen Shadows Transmedia Universe, as well as the middle grade adventure Trail of the Cursed Cobras. He's also the co-host of the Geek Syndicate podcast. So welcome, Barry. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, it's an interesting topic today. But first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing. Okay. Well, I am now the ripe old age of, let me see, 53. So we'd have to turn the clock all the way back to me being 11 years old. And my brother took me to see Raise the Lost Ark. Ah, and, wonderful. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. I know we're kindred spirits on this front. Indeed. And I remember I came out of that film and my mind was just completely blown. And I knew I wanted to do something I'd never written before. I knew I wanted to do something. I didn't know what it was I wanted to do. And I remember saying this to my mum and my mum saying to me, why don't you write something? So I did. I remember the story I wrote was particularly terrible because it was just a complete ripoff of Razor Lost Ark. The weird thing was that that story never really saw the light of day. But the title for that story, I lifted and now that is the title for a middle grade novel. So Trail of the Cursed Cobras was actually the title of the very first story I tried to write when I was 11 years old. So I thought it was quite a nice, <laughs> it was quite yeah. a nice nod to the 11-year-old me. Now Did you writing. write that for your kids or something? No, no. I mean, I don't have kids. It's a strange story. I'd basically been approached by an agent who had read some of my other work. And she'd asked me, had I ever thought about writing middle grade fiction? And I'd said, nope, never, never thought of it. I've read a load of middle grade fiction. I love, I love that, that area. But I didn't think I could do it. You know, I thought it's a lot more difficult than people think it is. But I, I gave it a go. As it turned out, I, um, me and the agent sort of parted ways. And I decided to carry on my own. And it's been great fun. It's, I'm, I'm currently working on the follow-up to it at the moment. And yeah, yeah, it's been, it's been great fun. Mm. Well, you mentioned that you had an agent and you were originally traditionally published in 1999 with your novel Paladin, but then you went indie. So tell us a bit more about how that whole publishing journey unfolded. Well, Paladin sort of, yeah, it kind of got picked up by a traditional publisher who at the time... <laughs> Let's just say I wasn't necessarily impressed with with some of their business practice, and we'll, we'll leave it there. And I, 
back then there was no I knew I wanted to do something on my own. I think I'd sort of came out of this and I'd, I'd started to approach other publishers and agents. And this was when I'd finished Fallen Heroes. And basically the feedback that I was getting were people were saying to me, we can't, we can't find a space for it. We can't see where it would go on the bookshelf. Now, the term, this might seem crazy now, but the term urban fantasy didn't exist back then. Mm. Uh, so stuff like Da Vinci Code and even like your books were very difficult to market back then because there was nowhere to really put it. Yes, you could call it a thriller, but I wouldn't say it was a thriller because it had all these different elements in it. So that that kind of drove me down the independent route. But what I realized when I got there was I had no idea what I was doing. There was no real help out there in the same way. Ally didn't exist. And I was pretty much flying solo. And I remember I... <laughs> My sole guide was a book that I'd got on self-publishing. It was a little bit like one of those sort of guidebooks, but it was it was all I had. And they used Lulu. Right. And .com. So I, I basically followed everything they said step by step in terms of like um, putting the draft together, getting it onto Lulu, trying to get it onto Amazon, trying to get it into bookshops. And the overriding thought that I had when I was doing this all was that I wanted this to look as professional as possible that that was the one thing that I wanted it, it needed to be indistinguishable from a traditionally published book when it was on the bookshelf and I was really lucky you know I managed to sort of find a, a cover artist that worked with me and we came you know and she she came up with a sorry he came up with a brilliant cover and and then I published it and then I started approaching bookshops and I think I contacted as I said, that back then it was very different. I contacted over 200 individual branches of Waterstones. <laughs> My goodness. Just to try to sort of get them to take a copy. And in the end, what happened was I contacted my local Waterstones who, and with a sort of read this book, if you don't like it, you don't have to contact me again. But if you do like it, maybe think about putting it on the shelf. And they read it, they liked it, they took some copies. Those copies sold, they took some more copies. They sold, they then invited me in for a book signing. And then a few other Waterstones got in contact. And it sort of kind of went from there, really. So when you say went from there, because, you know, it sounds like you had a difficult start, but from your, you've got this whole sort of universe thing going on now. So, uh, and yes, you see your website talks about Unseen Shadows as a transmedia project. So you've certainly gone beyond sort of one book (laughs) into this (laughs) bigger world, this bigger universe. So where are you now and what is this transmedia? How do you define transmedia? Well, I'll answer where I'm now because I'm kind of at a crossroads, really. I'm sort of taking a which is weird doing this interview, but I'm, I'm kind of taking a bit of a step back from everything because I'm trying to finish my current book. I've still got my other trilogy to finish. And what I found is, is that I, I think I've just got so confused with there's so many different ways to market now compared to when I first started that I've just got a bit overwhelmed of it all. So I've decided to sort of take a bit of a step back and sort of refocus and repurpose. And actually what I found is listening to your podcast especially and listening to Allied and being a member of Allied now that's really kind of given me a lot more tools than I had before but in terms of the transmedia stuff so I think that sometimes people can get confused and I think when people think of transmedia so if you think of 
say one of your books some people might think transmedia is is literally someone takes your book and adapts it as a tv show or they adapt it as a comic whereas how i think of transmedia is for example in one of my books there's a character called the reverend who's a he's a bit of a vigilante and um what we've done is there's a comic which all which deals with how he got started what his origins are and there's another comic which is another adventure with him now even though his origin is briefly mentioned in the actual book i think there's basically a paragraph the comics take that paragraph and expand upon it while staying within the confines of the story so the way i look at transmedia storytelling is it's basically telling a single story or story experience across many different formats. Does that make sense? So well, mm. just... It's interesting because it's so funny. Like over a decade ago, I interviewed an author. I think it was JC Hutchins on Transmedia. Like literally, that's why it was so funny when you when you pitched me this topic because I was like, oh my goodness, I did this a decade ago. <laughs> and what it was back then was the word was kind of used as, let's say you have a book that references the character's phone number. Mm-hmm. Then that phone number actually gets set up or it references a certain talent that they have and that actually gets created or you've got that as and you can follow the clues in the real world or a website a private detective agency actually has a website set up for that and in fact that tv show castle they actually published some of castle's books even though castle was a character (laughs) yeah yeah they did (laughs) that that kind of thing so i see what what you're saying is almost you're expanding if if the book is canon so the canon story are the books you're almost expanding the canon with these offshoots i guess yes so and and i think it was one of the draws for how the very members of the creative team got involved with it was what i said was any of the other projects were 100 percent canon to my stories because I think one of the things that you see in a lot of kind of other transmedia projects, they did it with Star Wars, where they do these offshoot stories, but they don't actually say that they're canon. They just say these are nice sort of little side stories, but they don't really affect what's going on in, in the main story. Whereas I've done that differently. I've kind of said, no, this is all canon. Everything you read in the comics or you listen to in audio drama is is canon. And to the point of there was one graphic novel which is actually set six months after the events of my first book. And it kind of bridges the gap between the first and second book. But what one of the things I've always tried to do is say that these can be independently enjoyed. So you don't have to have read my novel. You could just pick up one of the comics and just read the comic and just put it down. But obviously, you get a richer experience if you're aware of the story, you know, the full story. Mm. And so there's a few questions from this. So first of all, this creative team. So mm-hmm. tell us about this, because I mean, so many of us as independents, uh, I mean, there's been things like Kindle Worlds where authors could have other authors who would write in their world. So that's one model. and But they're not canon, as you mentioned. Then there's the sort of co-writing. So Michael Anderley and Craig Martell in, in, in that business, they're getting a lot of co-writers to write in their universes, but the royalties are kind of split differently. So tell Tell us about how did you attract this creative team? What how does that all work? Yeah, well, it's a bit of a weird one, and it's a bit <laughs> it's kind of uncomfortable because in one respect, I don't really have the creative team anymore. It's kind of almost come back to me just because we've done all these titles now. It completely came about by accident. 
and it doesn't sound it, but it, it came about by accident. What happened was I'd been approached by a comic company who wanted to do a straight adaptation of Fallen Heroes. And I said, that, that'd, be, that'd be lovely. <laughs> so I started to work with them and the creative team that they had put together, which was a writer, artist, colorist, and a letterer. And I'd started to work together with them. And we'd got part, part way through the first issue when the company went bust. And I, I didn't know what to do, but the, the team that were involved, they wanted to keep going. And they said, is there any way that we can finish the comic and get it out? And I was kind of saying, well, I, I haven't got any money. I can't pay you. you know? And they were kind of like, no, no, that's fine. We just want to get this out in some shape or form. So because I was doing Geek Syndicate, I kind of knew a few companies in the sort of comic sphere. And I was able to get some advertising. Basically, what I did was I offered advertising space at the back of the, the first issue of the comic. And that was, able, that was enough to pay for the printing of the first comic. And then to cut a long story short, whilst we were working on all of that, one of the creative team had been talking to her partner, who was a writer, who had read Fallen Heroes and loved it. And he, he'd sort of then said to me, was there anything, I'd like to be a part of it in some shape or form. Could, maybe I could write a script for a comic, another comic. And I was kind of like, okay. And he said, you know, would you want me to do? I said, well, just pitch me a story on one of the characters and we'll take it from there. And we did that. And we put together a team. They again, it was the same sort of thing. I, I got approached by people. I think it was a lot of it came because people knew me from the podcast and they knew me from comic conventions. And what started to happen was other people got more involved because they could see certain other um people who were already involved. Like it was certain artists wanted to work with certain writers, so they got involved. And I think people just liked the idea of creating something that hadn't been done before this idea of using prose within comics and I think the fact that I was saying to people it was 100% canon and, and effectively do what you want within certain guidelines but you mm. know do what you want does that make Didn't sense some, don't throw a robot in or something yeah, yeah. well fit? yeah it, it, it was weird <laughs> it was because all of the comics I haven't written any of the scripts these have been written by comic writers my involvement has been just overseeing it just making sure that everything makes sense within the confines of of the world that I've built but all of the writers have read the book and what amazed me was how well they were versed in the law of the book and some of the questions that they were firing back at me as they were sort of developing scripts and stuff that kind of gave me ideas when I was then working on the sequel so yeah so it, it was a great experience doing all of these but what's kind of happened now is We've kind of done them all. And because now I'm trying to write this, get these other books done and stuff, I've kind of taken a step back to really look at how, what's the best way I can sort of uh, market the content that I have. I don't like that word content. Um, market market <laughs> yeah. the books and, and the, the, all this creative stuff that I've got is what's the best way to get it out there to sort of proper showcase the work that he's that um, you've got men and women have done yeah intellectual property let's call it that there but this is yeah. actually a question i have though because one of the things that is very difficult with this kind of work is the rights to the universe so let's say i don't know let's say marvel come and they say barry we want everything do you have you always done 
like the right kinds of contracts so it's yours to control or do you only control the two books because the the, the problem is characters and how they cross different intellectual property assets so do, is that all in place in, in case you get a big film or a big gaming to, deal to a certain extent i think mm. part of it was because a lot of it was people that i knew and these these were friends as opposed to like straight up business relationships we had luckily one of the people who was involved with the original adaptation who was a uh, Nikki Flistin hello who made all this possible she basically put together a kind of almost like a soft soft <laughs> contract which basically laid out to people that the rights to the characters and the world still belong to me marvelous mm. mm. yeah so everything still belongs to me but i think they also know that i wouldn't i wouldn't leave anyone hanging Oh no, I'm sure you wouldn't you know. be a dick about it. No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but the they... reality is these things can be held yeah. up because of of contracts. So that sounds amazing. And let's just come back to the, the comics because I having a look at your website, there's loads of them. And it's so funny because <laughs> you've kind of said that the, the, you didn't have to pay for these. They happen through the advertising model or through relationships that you've made through your geek syndicate. And this is one of the challenges of graphic novels is they are so expensive to make. Yeah. So apart from the costs, which you managed to do, what are the other challenges? Because it, it also back when you started, I mean, Cosmicology was later bought by Amazon. Yes. I think. So yeah, how have you done yeah. the distribution of the comics? So I do, or I have done in the past, I've done a, like a small print run. For when a title's come out, I've done a small print one, which normally I then launch at a comic convention. But at the same time, I was doing digital editions, which were available via Comicsology. And but comics, but even when Comicsology was bought up by Amazon, you I could still get my titles onto Amazon via Comicsology. Although it's it, they've now changed the format of Comicsology on Amazon, so it's gone a bit rubbish at the moment, <laughs> which is a real shame because actually how it used to look was 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 amazing and there's a couple of other sort of more independent places where you can I can sell my stuff digitally and the good thing about it is some of those places handle the tax which I think was part of the reason why I struggled with the idea of selling the digital stuff directly myself was because they mm. bought in this whole sort of tax law was if you're selling digitally you didn't have to pay tax on it as well and it was just an extra and because I I have a full-time job so this isn't like my full-time job I didn't have that kind of time to try and work out that side of things and to be honest I wasn't making enough to, to make that time viable yeah um, well that's what I was thinking I was like goodness me this looks like an incredible amount of of comics for something that does <laughs> something that's kind of emerged but what are those other sites if people listening are interested in those one I've seen now you put me in the spot comicsy I think it's called yeah, one's called Comicsy. That is probably the only one that I do use because I've started to look into. Um, I think it was on your podcast I heard it, which was Shopify, because I know Shopify does digital stuff as well, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, and also print on demand, drop shipped. So, yeah. as in, you can have the files at the printer and they get printed when it gets ordered. Yes, which is one of the things that I've been experimenting with uh, probably over the past sort of six months or so, which was putting the comics onto the likes of Lulu and Amazon as a print on demand model. 
Mm. Uh, the downside of that is that for the most part, it is still quite expensive. Yes. Oh, I mean, yeah, because it's, are you doing full colour print or just black and yeah. white? Full yeah. colour. Um, yeah, well, they they to me these lovely comics in physical editions are essentially special editions because they're so expensive. But it, obviously, if you go to a comic shop, they're always going to be a little bit cheaper because we can't print at that kind of scale. Yeah, but it is. It, tell us a bit more about the comic. Like you've got Geek Syndicate, and obviously you go to comic events. Tell us about the fan scene for it's more than just one genre, obviously, but the sort of the formats for comics and graphic novels. It seems like it's huge now. Yeah, I mean, it's all. I mean, it was weird because when we first started Geek Syndicate, I'd never been. I've always been a comic reader since I was a kid I kind of went away from it a little bit but I've always been a fan of the comics and then when we started doing the podcast I realized I'd never been to a comic convention and that was like the first one we put right we went to a comic convention in Birmingham and I even I went in with those sort of preconceived ideas I think people have a lot of preconceived ideas about what a comic convention is like and stuff everyone's dressed in costumes and stuff like which does happen but What I loved about it, and it's something that I've missed over the last couple of years with the pandemic, is the level of creativity that's in the air when you go to one of these conventions. It's amazing. You you can't not come out of one of these conventions as a creative person. You just want to get home and create. And it doesn't matter whether that creation is writing prose or comics or acting or whatever. It's just being around like-minded creative people. It's the same. I haven't actually done many book conventions. It's something I kind of want to do, but I imagine it's a similar vibe that you get from a book convention. But I think one of the things you realize when you go to comic conventions is all the different ways that people can create with comics and the different types of stories that can be told is, you know, I I think when you don't know about these things, you, you, I, you go straight to DC and Marvel and you think they're the only types of stories and comics that are out there. And don't get me wrong, I, I still love DC and Marvel stuff. But you wouldn't think about the all about graphical comics, thrillers, romance, what they call slice of life, sports comic. You know, there's a comic for every genre. And I always say there's a comic for every person. It's just about matching you up with, your, with the right comic. Mm, in fact, now there's a lot of non-fiction books being adapted to, I guess, graphic non-fiction like Yuval Noah Harari's books. He's putting those out. I mean, the difference between a comic and a, a sort of a, a non-fiction book told in images in the panels, is it a, a fact of the, just the format as in a book format versus a comic format, which to me is a sort of soft cover, quite thin as opposed to a book no see i'm going to try and see if i get this right if comic readers if you're listening i apologize if i now murder this <laughs> uh, so let's start the book so you, you have a what they call comic or what they call a floppy so a floppy would be more the your traditional where it's quite thin normally about 22 pages mm. and it's floppy mm. <laughs> then you might if you've got a so if you're doing a series you might have a you might bring out after the, after you've done six issues, you might bring out a collection of those first six issues. That would be called a trade. So that's called a trade paperback, I think. And that is is bound as as a book. That's, that's bound. So that looks like a as you say, like a book. 
but, but a big actually, book like a, a oversized yes yeah format. Yeah. Mm. yeah but that's called a trade now a graphic novel is more it's basically a self-contained story which is bound tends to be you know can be anything from 60 pages upwards to your 200 pages so even if you go onto like my site you'll see that I, I have some floppies but I also have some graphic novels as well which are self-contained stories that are about 100 pages mm. so I think sometimes people do get a bit confused and sometimes I know some comic fans get get a bit riled when people talk about a graphic novel and they think a graphic novel is everything well actually it's a specific type of comic Right. No, that's really interesting. And it's so funny because, I mean, now we, you know, you and I are both in the UK and you go mm. into bookstores and they're, even in a reasonably small bookstore now, you'll get a section for graphic novels, some of which I presume are those trades that you talked about, like collections of, of comics. And so it seems like it's taken off a lot more, even in, in the mainstream. And I can only sort of link that to Netflix and Amazon Studios and a lot more of these properties being developed into transmedia, as you talked about, like TV yeah. shows, Neil Gaiman's work, for example, or, you know, they're, they're kind of crossing. Is it because when people pick up a, a comic, it's a lot of the work's already been done in terms of an adaptation to a visual format. It's like, here's, here's the image, here's a storyboard, basically. Yeah. And also as well, I've, I think it's become more and I think the likes of Netflix have probably done that it's become more acceptable to I guess to experience it in that way and I have kind of mixed feelings because there's some adaptations which come to the screen or come to TV which are brilliant some which are less so but also as well I hate to be that guy but most of them still don't hold a candle to reading the actual comic in the same way as reading the book but it's it's you know horses horses for courses but yeah it's probably it's a much bigger audience <laughs> yeah you know and also as well like I think there's certain properties that if I said to people that was based on the comic they'd be like oh it wasn't like Road to Perdition with Tom Hanks that was a comic I think Obviously. isn't the the boys on Amazon Prime yes. I mean, that is, it's one of my favourite series. People listening, it's very, very violent. Do not, very watch, violent. It with, do not watch it with children. But no. I, I love that series. I mean, they've basically kept the kind of comic comic splatter, splatter gore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in that, that in, and what do you think about that adaptation? I think, well, weirdly, it, that's a really good one because I actually remember reading the first volume of The Boys and I I. I stopped reading it because it was too much for me. Oh, really? In some ways, the comic is still more than the TV show is. Which has got a lot more co uh, comedy, I guess. There's, yeah. a, there's a comedic edge to it, too. I, I just think that with the comic, there's so much stuff going on that for <laughs> my, my, my poor sensible sensibilities, it was, just, it was too much. Whereas I absolutely love the, the TV show. Mm-hmm. Me too. So it's and it's one of the few times where it is. I, I actually prefer the TV show to the comic, and that's no not nothing against the comic. Garth Ennis did a brilliant. Yeah, he's a brilliant. Well, I think he produced the TV show as well. Yeah, 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 which is amazing. And this crossover environment's interesting. So I, I mean, I am interested. I have talked to people on the show before about graphic novels. I don't know if you heard that episode. It was probably six or seven years ago. And at the time, I talked to this um, 
was probably more than that now. It probably was a decade ago. I've been doing this so long. <laughs> but I, it, this guy, we did actually talk about maybe doing a, a Kickstarter or something because it's so expensive to yeah. adapt. So if people listening, if they want to do a comic of their novel and they don't have all the mates like you do... <laughs> <laughs> are, are there ways to to do that now? Like, how would someone go about getting a, a graphic novel done of their work? I think, well, I mean, I think what a lot of people are doing now, a, a lot more people in the comic scene are turning towards Kickstarter. Mm, yeah. um, I've seen a lot of uh, people doing that now. And it's basically covering not only their printing costs, but the cost of of paying their creative team. And in many ways, that, that's probably one of the big ways now. Because as you said, it is very expensive. I was just fortunate, I guess, at the time. And I think if I was to do it again now, I, I would be looking to do it in the Kickstarter for varying reasons because I would want people to get some form of financial recompense for the work they're putting in, you know. Mm. And also the fact that when you're going to come to do this, you've got to kind of ask yourself how deep down the rabbit hole do you want to go? So, for example, you could... So to put together any comic, really, you could either do it yourself, which I've seen people do. Even people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves artists have done. I was, was going to say, there's a specific <laughs> artistic skill involved. <laughs> well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, there's, it depends on what your view of comic art is, because there's some comics out, out there which you wouldn't necessarily say fall into that category of like fantastically great Marvel style art, mm. but have gone on to be hugely, hugely successful. Interesting. Um, Can you think of a specific example? Putting you on the spot here, but in my head, I only have that kind of Marvel style. So give us an example of something that might be a different style. Okay, yeah. yeah, I think different styles is a better way to look at it because it doesn't mean it's better or worse. Uh, Rachel Rachel Smith, uh, who is an artist and creator, and she did a comic during lockdown Mm -hmm. uh, called Quarantine Comics. A memory of a life in lockdown and she used to do it she was doing it as a, like a web comic yeah. and now it's kind of all been packaged and released and she's done a few other comics as well now her art style is dramatically different from what you as you said you mentioned uh dc and marvel her art style is dramatically different from that and yet i absolutely love her work you know and that's what i mean is that and if you looked at it you would think, you might not think, oh, I could do that. But there are people out there who would think, oh, I could actually have a go at that. But it's not, it's the, I think with comics, it's the combination. It's the art and it's the writing. You know, you can have amazing art and terrible writing. So you've yep. got a terrible comic. Or you can have not great art, but fantastic writing. And you can still have a terrible comic. <laughs> Um, so well, that, but uh, yeah. that's the truth with adaptation, isn't it? Regardless, yeah. whether it's TV, whatever it is, comics or anything, you can have an adaptation that is not, it didn't fit what your words in your head, what your words were, which I think is, it, it is the challenge. But I mean, you've got me thinking again, like my book Desecration, which is about body modification and the history of anatomy and corpse art. And it's super dark and it's like a murder mystery too. And in my mind, it's always been visual and I almost do see it like comic panels in my head and now you've made me think that maybe uh, that's a good way to to go about trying to tell the story in a different way because you do have that well I think I think the way if if that's how you're thinking it the first thing you want to do is 
go online, look at some comic panels and some art, some different comic artists, and you can just search for stuff. You can go on Amazon and look at the comics on Amazon, get an account, maybe pick up a few digital comics and stuff and have it and start to have a bit of a look and find the sort of style that you like. Like you said, you mentioned DC and Marvel. You might find one of those. I mean, those eyes would, would cost you an arm and a leg. But then once you've got an idea of the sort of style, you could then start to shop around a bit and look for an artist that maybe you think would work quite well mm. uh, and then approach them and then basically find out how much it would cost. Basically, what happens is they have what they call a page rate. So they will charge you per page that they do. Now, this is where it gets a bit complicated because any comic that you put together tends to have these jobs now these jobs can be done by the same person or they can be done by multiple people so you'd have a writer so even though you've written it you might want to have an actual comic writer to adapt it Mm. because there's a very specific way to write a comic script Mm, if you've never done a comic script before it's yeah i I, I, people keep asking me to try my hand at writing the comic i'm like no (laughs) (laughs) No. even though you're so embedded in it Yeah. yeah it's a real skill it is a real skill. So that's thing number one. Then you want a penciler. So it'd be someone who just does the pencils. Then you would want an inker. So that's someone who then goes over the pencils with ink. And sometimes they'll add extra sort of depth to it. Mm. Then a colorist would come in and add color. And then you'd get a letterer who would come in and would add the words. Now, again, letterers are an overlooked job. A great letterer will do wonders for you. And that's um, like the font and the layout of the yeah, dialogue yeah. and the little inserts that... Yeah, the speech um, bubbles. Yeah, the yeah. speech bubbles and then almost the extra text that you have, like next next day and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Mm. And again, the type of lettering that you'll see in comics can will, will vastly differ um, from comic to comic as well. Um, it, I guess in a way it's quite similar to when people do children's books and they have to work with illustrators yeah. and layout and stuff like that. I mean, it's a similar idea. It's, yeah. it's a, just a very different thing. And I've certainly talked a lot more to children's authors on the podcast, but I think this is super interesting. But We're heading towards out of time. This is such an interesting <laughs> topic. But tell us a bit more about uh, Geek Syndicate and what that is and how it relates to your creative life. Um, well geek geek syndicate is basically a look at geekdom through my eyes and the eyes of my best friend dave motif who we grew up together i've known dave since i was living at school together and so we started it before it was basically before podcasts had really started in the uk dave had been listening to some american podcasts and then he got in contact we'd sort of left we sort of lost touch actually and we saw the podcast as a sort of get back into touch with our love of sort of geek stuff because where we grew up there wasn't that same kind of there wasn't a lot of geeks in, in Tottenham <laughs> so. in Tottenham back in the day back in no, the 80s wasn't. and 90s no there wasn't not really so it wasn't it, cool back then either like, no it wasn't cool no, to be a geek no, it is now I mean, yeah supposedly <laughs> depends who you talk to that's um, a good point okay it's cool for me I think yeah. it's cool um, so yeah so we started doing the, the podcast with no thought that anyone was even going to listen to it. We started it almost just with a view of, it was almost like an extended phone call between the two of us for an hour and a half. And uh, yeah, so 16 years later, and we were still going. And we've had about, because it wasn't just Geek Syndicate, we then started to launch other podcasts on our feed. And we, we at one stage, I think we were running about eight or nine podcasts 
which had different hosts on it and sometimes we would pop on and whatever and we were doing interviews and we've hosted panels at conventions and then obviously we ended up doing a two shows for the BBC for the iPlayer which was which is amazing yeah it was amazing (laughs) it was amazing yeah just turned out and it's one of the bits it's one of the if it's one piece of advice I could give to anyone who's doing anything creatively who's worried as as we all are that no one's listening to me or, or no one's reading my stuff that sometimes I know financially it's a different thing but sometimes it isn't about the numbers of people who might be listening who might be reading but you know it's that right person at the right time and it turned out for us one of our listeners we had no idea was a BBC producer we had no idea and he used to just listen to us thought we were really funny and then there were putting together this iPlayer show and originally it was going to be talking heads so we were going to be like just one of the people they would cut to talk to Mm. and um, so they brought us down I came down to London they shot a little bit of footage of us just they could see if they could use it or not and then showed it to the big ones at the BBC and they loved it so much that they changed the entire format and they made us the presenters (laughs) which which says you know which says a lot because they wouldn't have done that unless they thought you guys were good and clearly you've got chemistry between you because you're so good friends and you're super geeks <laughs> yeah yeah so it, it worked and we were only supposed to do the one show and then during that one show they commissioned a second show where we sort of got to then travel around the country to different because it was the year of sci-fi that they were celebrating at that time and we, they were doing all these different events around the country so we kind of went off to the British Museum to watch Flash Gordon and we got to interview Brian Bressard which was yeah I saw that clip on <laughs> him <laughs> Gordon's Alive yeah. clip yeah I mean it's, it's a longer it's obviously you can't get it on the iPlayer anymore sadly but it's a much longer sequence of us and Brian and yeah he's quite the force to be reckoned with oh, goodness Brian. me yeah but I think what's lovely is that when we started this conversation you kind of started in in this way of oh I'm a bit confused now there's different ways to market I feel a bit overwhelmed I'm taking a step back and now we've gone through some of the things you've been doing over the years it almost feels like you've almost fallen into all of this different stuff <laughs> <laughs> and yet you've created this incredible body of work I know it it probably to you feels like a long time I mean I started my podcast in 2009 so you were a couple of years before me yeah. although I have a lot more episodes by the way yes <laughs> So yes. clearly I've been working harder. Yes. Well. <laughs> but, it's, but it's funny, but I wonder just coming back to what you said at the beginning, because you talked about being overwhelmed and that you're looking at refocusing and, yeah. you know, really thinking about things. So looking back now, can you see how much you've achieved and and can you look forward into how this is going to go in the future? Yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky that I have an amazing wife who constantly says to me, look at what you've done why (laughs) I'm with her I'm saying that too (laughs) why are you sitting there for look at what you've done and yeah every so often I think sometimes when you're caught in the eye of the storm you don't always see the great stuff swirling around you you know Mm. um and yeah I'm very proud of what we've all accomplished because it's not just me but yeah I'm 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 very proud of it and in terms of going forward that's part of the reason why I I do want to sometimes you've got to take a step back to kind of run forward um Mm. and I think that's kind of what I want to do because I think I'm a little bit like one of those I can't think of the bird if it's a magpie where I see something shiny and I automatically fly towards it 
and I think that's what I've been doing and I think what that hasn't been very very healthy for me I guess um so I think what I wanted to do was just take that step back so I could kind of look to be a bit more laser focused about where I go next and also sometimes when you're doing so many things what can suffer is the one thing that you really want to be doing which is being creative you know sometimes you're so busy managing things and editing and stuff like that you don't remember to sort of go oh hang on a minute I'm a writer I should actually get around to writing something yeah it's one of the dangers of being I call it a multi-passionate creative because even like this podcast is creative and yeah. I do think about the podcast as part of my body of work because th- this will help people this will help other people move into their creativity and you've given me ideas and I hope you've been listening to the show so I hope you've had ideas yes. from the show and Plenty. yeah so that's the thing and that's what keeps me going as well it's look okay so it takes us both some time to do this but I've certainly got a lot out of this conversation and I know people listening will have. And yeah, it's good. I mean, it's interesting that you're thinking, I mean, I'm just a couple of years younger than you are. And I guess we've both been doing this <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And I feel the same way. Like I'm I'm re- trying to refocus and think about where I want to go over the next decade. And maybe we're just in that midlife, <laughs> midlife yeah. phase as well. And, and I think as well, what, what happens with me is whenever I start to, um or, or Dave does because sometimes it's Dave as well we think about, oh maybe we should wrap up the podcast or whatever you know we get an email I remember mm. it, it was when we've been doing it for 10 years and I was thinking maybe I don't know 10 years that's a good number to sort of end on and we'd got an email from we don't get a great many emails but we'd got an email from a listener who had said that his dad had passed away and basically one of the things that had kept him going it was a it was a horror I know what it's like to lose parents and stuff so I could relate and what he'd said was he went into this like real pit and it was a really horrible time for him and he said the one bright spot was listening to the podcast and he was thanking us for doing the podcast Mm. when you get emails like that you sort of go okay maybe maybe we can go for a little bit longer yeah and here we are (laughs) all these years later (laughs) (laughs) no I feel the same way well look it's been so lovely to talk to you Barry tell everyone where can people find you and everything you do online well at the moment the best place to find me is uh, barrynugent.com if you want more detailed stuff on the unseen shadow stuff you can go to unseenshadows.com brilliant well thanks so much for your time that was great thanks So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Barry. I had loads of ideas sparking when we talked and I love that we're in such a varied industry where our stories can go in so many directions and it's always good to remember to stop and consider how much you have achieved creatively over the long term, even if it feels like things are moving slowly. Right now, if you look at things in this bigger perspective, it can be surprising. So next week, I'm talking about different types of traditional publishing experiences with Georgina Cross. And in the meantime, please go and complete my survey at thecreativepen.com forward slash survey 22. In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at thecreativepen or find me on Facebook at thecreativepen. 
See you next time.